Let's read it, verses 5 through 10. Follow along. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Father, as we come into this letter written by John to a church that he loved, we ask that you would speak to this church this morning. We believe that this is not merely John's word, but this is your word. And it has been preserved for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I recently read a story of a guy who was in a restaurant in Long Beach, California, and uh, there with his lovely lady and ordered some fried chicken. And the woman behind the register, instead of giving him their bag of fried chicken, accidentally gave them their bag of the day's proceeds, $800 of cash. And they walked out. It wasn't, it wasn't until they got to their picnic date, they sat down to open up their bag and discovered $800 in their hands. What would you do? There's the moment. There's the question, isn't it? (laughs) Well, this guy did the right thing. He put the money right back, drove all the way back to the restaurant, and walked in. By that time, the manager is frantic and freaking out and uh, thrilled when when, when the man walks in with the money. And the manager says to the man, let me call the newspaper You are the most honest man in the world. We need to get your picture taken. And the man said, oh, no, 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 please don't do that. And then he leaned over and quietly whispered to the manager, you see, the woman I'm with is not my wife. She's somebody else's wife. Sometimes someone might appear to be honest, but there's a greater dishonesty happening. Sometimes we appear to be walking in the light when in all reality we are living in the dark. So for that reason, I want to go into this text today and I want to speak to you on this title, Living in the Light. Living in the Light. Because family, it is possible to look good, but on the inside is only dark. It's possible to to seem like you've got it all together, but if one were to really examine your life, there would be only brokenness. 
It's possible to present ourselves as godly when in all reality we are living like the devil. Are you living in the light? Or are you living hiding in the dark? A lot of folks claim to be Christian. I know that we're kind of beyond a Christian culture to a large degree. I know that there are other religions that are rising. But still, at least in Baltimore, a lot of folks still claim to be Christian. But when we really examine their life, when we become fruit inspectors, so to speak, things get a little worrisome. There are some trends, even within Christian circles, that are worrisome. One of those trends would be a trend of minimizing sin. I know that I'm not supposed to have sex with anybody that's not my wife, but I got needs. Or I know that I'm not supposed to use alcohol to just escape all of my problems and get drunk or get high, but, but you don't understand my stress. Or I know it's technically wrong to cheat on an exam, but I know this answer. I know this answer. I just can't think of it right now, and so I'm going to cheat. Or maybe it's not an exam that we cheat on, but it's our taxes. And there's a, we, we, my point is we find ways to minimize sin, right? We find ways to sort of explain sin away, and we do so kind of claiming the grace of God, claiming the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and so therefore sin in my body is no longer that big of, of a deal. Another trend is really a step beyond that, a step more worrisome, and that is the trend to just simply deny sin altogether. To say, I, you know, look, Christian or humans are not born with a sin nature. Humans aren't born with sort of an, an intrinsic desire to do evil. Humans are essentially good and aren't sinful. They're broken, I'll take that. I'll take broken because something that's broken is sad. But we're not going to call it sinful because something that's sinful requires a penalty. And so there's a tendency, sometimes outright, to just simply deny sin altogether, completely. Now, here's a question I want to examine a little bit here is why do we do this? Why do we, and I'm not pointing at you and we're not pointing at them, why do we have a tendency to both minimize sin as well as deny sin? Let me tell you why, this, why I think we do this. I think we have a tendency to minimize sin and to deny sin because first, if we're honest, we like it. We like our sin. I mean, don't raise your hand, but who would sin if you didn't like it? Right? 
The only reason we sin is because we like it. And so I think it's the first reason why, why we minimize it and why we deny it is because we like sin. But I think there's a second reason as well that goes a little deeper beyond that. That is this. If we do confess our sin, now we have to deal with it. If we do call whatever it is that we're struggling with sin, now we, we have to do something with it. And I think the problem there is, is that we don't always know what the remedy is. I don't know what to do with my sin. And so I'm just going to hide in the dark. Well, today I want to take you straight to the remedy for sin. So that we no longer have to hide. So that we no longer have to live in the dark, but so that we can live in the light of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. We begin here with this picture of who God is. And really what's going on in this letter is verse 5 frames the rest of our passage this morning, verses 6 through 10. Verse 5 sets the stage for everything else that we're going to look at. In verse 5 it says, this is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is the message that we proclaim to you. That word proclaim indicates that, that, that the people are about to receive it, which means this is a message. This is like a special news bulletin just for you this morning is what he's saying. I'm proclaiming, I'm bringing this special news, this special message to you today. And in him there is no darkness at all. In the original wording of this, in the Greek language, it actually is worded in this way. It's, it says, there is in him no darkness, none. Now that's pretty bad English. If my kids said, there is in him no darkness, none, I think we would correct them. But theologically, we would not correct them. That's really good theology. It's this double negative. It's this emphatic, there is no darkness in him, none, nothing, not at all. Meaning God, it says, is light. And if he is light, then there is in him no darkness, none. There is no immorality, impurity, or indecency in God. There is no falsehood or failure in God. Now, what John is doing is this. He's saying, this is who God is. And if a Christian claims to be in a relationship with this God, well, then what does a real Christian look like? That's what he's doing in this passage. Let's think about it together, John is saying. What does a real Christian look like if this is who God is, and if a Christian is in a relationship with this, with this God. Now, before we get into this, I, I want to draw out about three things here, three points that John makes as to what a real Christian looks like. But before we do that, let me back up a little bit and let me say something about what I'm going to say. First, every single one of these points that John makes 
is both descriptive and imperative. Do you guys know what I mean by that? All right, so let me just use my son Haddon as an example. If Haddon, and I'm not saying he did, does, if Haddon were to ever hit his sister, I would come to Haddon and I would say, you know, if that were to ever happen, I would come to Haddon and I would say, Haddon, you're a Kerr's boy. And a Kerr's does not hit their sister. But we only use our fists to protect our sisters. Now, what am I doing there? I'm describing to him what a, who a Kerr's is, right? These are the expectations of a Kerr's. This is, what, this is what it means to be part of our family. This is our family DNA, if you would. So on one hand, it's describing for him who a Kerr's is. On the other hand, there's an imperative nature to that. I'm, I'm, I'm through describing what a Kerr's is. I'm also... I'm calling him to be that as well. Does that make sense? I'm putting an exclamation point on it. I'm saying, so you don't hit your sisters, but you only use your fists to protect your sisters. You see what I'm saying? And so as we get into this, what John is doing, he's very pastoral. And John is describing for the church, he's saying, this is who a Christian is. And he's also calling us to be each one of these. So let's get into it. What does a real Christian look like? Well, first, a real Christian should not sin. A real Christian should not sin. Let me explain that for a moment here. When my wife and I were in college, we went to some friend's house uh, for dinner and a movie, they baked some chicken, and we turned the lights off, and we watched the movie while we ate. Now, the chicken uh, tasted really strange. It was weird. And uh, for that reason, everybody uh, only ate half their big fat chicken breast, except for me. I ate the whole thing, all right, because my mother taught me. You never leave anything on your plate, especially when you're a guest in somebody's home, no matter what it tastes like, all right? Thus saith my mother, not the Lord. And uh, so when we turned the lights on, we realized why it tasted weird. The chicken was raw. It was like seared on the outside, kind of like tuna, if you've ever had tuna. And it was smooth, pink, and chill on the inside. Now, if someone were to come to you and they were to say, don't eat raw chicken. Humans don't eat raw chicken. We would say, correct. I've got no problem with that, right? But I didn't know that it was raw because the lights were off. It wasn't until the lights were turned on and all things came into the light. You see what I'm saying? See where I'm going with this analogy? It's only when I came, we came into the light that we saw that we were doing what we should not do. The difference between sin and raw chicken is sin is more like arsenic. 
all right, just kind of sprinkled into really good grilled chicken. You, you don't even know it's there. It tastes really good in the moment, doesn't it? See, I want you to get this. When God, what we're talking about, when we talk about holiness and sin, it's too often we think that God is just giving us a list of rules arbitrarily to make our life miserable. Don't do this. You got to do this. Man, God, God makes my life so miserable, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. God is saying, I don't want you to eat raw chicken. All right? Now that's not what you get what I'm saying. I don't want you to eat this poison. I don't want you to make this your meal because it will kill you. It will hurt you. Like God really wants our best when he calls us away from sin and to holiness. Are you tracking with me? What verse 6 is talking about here is the person who says that they are not eating the poison, but in secret, in the dark, their meal, their diet consists of poison. So look at verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, so if this is who God is, God is light, and in Him there is no what? Darkness. If we say that we have a fellowship with this God, but then he goes on, while we walk in what? Help me out. In darkness. What are we doing? He says we actually lie. We lie. If we say that we have this relationship with this God, yet our life live, is lived in a way that is so contrary to who God is, he, he actually says that we're lying. And we're not lying with our lips, but we're lying with our, uh, with our actions as we don't live according to our words. And he says, and we do not practice the truth. If, however, so now he, on the flip side, if you would. And by the way, let me just say a note here. John is so pastoral. He has all of these ifs. And what this, these ifs mean is, John is saying, I'm not saying this is the case, but just imagine with me for a moment that you're living like this. Do you see what I'm saying? He's not accusing you of living in the dark uh, while you're claiming to live in the light. He's saying, imagine if this were the case. I'm not saying this is happening right now in your midst, but imagine if there was a group of people who lived this way, all right? So now he's flipping it around, and he's saying, okay, so with that being said, if we claim to live in the light, but we live in the dark, we're lying, let's flip that. Let's, let's flip it around. Verse 7, he says, but if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we are walking in the light. Now, walking literally is a, is a reference to the way that we are living our life. How are we walking through this life? So if we are walking in the dark, that means that we are living in unrepentant, ongoing, blatant sin. But if we are walking in the light, that means that we are walking in His presence, in holiness, in His grace. If we are walking then in His 
grace and holiness, if we're walking in the light, what surprises me about this verse is he says we have fellowship with one another. You would assume that he would say we have fellowship with God. But I think that that is sort of assumed by John. Meaning we are not going to walk in the light if we don't have fellowship with God. The unexpected blessing of walking in the light is that we have fellowship with one another. Which means then that my sin hurts you. Your sin hurts me. Our sin hurts each other. Look, we are too individualistic as Americans. We just think, no, this is my personal sin, and it doesn't affect anybody that I love. No, friends, it does. It breaks our sweet fellowship together. We cannot have Christian fellowship if we are living in ongoing unrepentant sin. And so a blessing, maybe an unexpected blessing of walking in the light is that we have fellowship with each other. Does your life reflect what you proclaim on Sundays? We sing this song, All I Have is Christ. Do we sing All I Have is Christ on Sundays, but then we live throughout the week with everything else? All I have is Christ, but I also have my porn. All I have is Christ, but I also have these sinful, habitual uh, uh, lifestyles over here. What, What are we clinging to in our life? What are we hoping in in our life outside of Jesus Christ? Do we fight for holiness? Listen, we talk a lot about grace in this church. You can't accuse this church of being a graceless church. Everybody and anybody is welcome in this church to come and explore the good news of Jesus Christ and to find the grace that is theirs. But sometimes it's possible in our emphasis of grace to forget that the church is also called to be a holy community. A community that is set apart, that is distinct, that is different from the world. Friends, let me ask you this question again. Do you fight for holiness in your life? Do you strive against your sin? Or do you merely just give yourself to it? Secondly, a real Christian should not hide sin. So a real Christian should not sin. Remember, we're descriptive and imperatives here. But also, a real Christian should not hide sin. There was a survey that I heard of of, uh, pastors and ministry leaders. And they were all asked this question. Do you have ongoing sin in your life? And what was amazing was how many of them said no. No, I don't have any ongoing sin. Well, let's just pause and think about that. Is there ongoing sin in the believer's life? The answer is yes, according to the Scriptures. The answer is we never get to a point in our life where we are free from the grace of God. 
where we no longer need the forgiveness of God. No, we are sinners. Right? Does, does a bark make someone a dog? Can somebody bark for me? Just don't worry about it. Never mind. <laughs> if Brian barks, does that make Brian a dog? No. Dogs bark because they're dogs. Well, what if I never sinned? People ask that question. No, sinners sin because they're sinners. We long for the day when we are freed from these sinful bodies and given new bodies that are freed from even the temptation to sin. But friends, until that day, we have ongoing sin in our life that we must regularly turn from, confess, and embrace the beautiful wonder of God's forgiveness and His grace. And John, by the way, he's being so pastoral here, isn't he? On one hand, he's saying, look, Christians should not sin. But don't play like you don't sin. That's, what, that's essentially what John is saying. If you act like you don't sin, that's his next point. Look at verse 8. If we say we have the truth, I'm sorry, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We talked about last week how there are, was most likely Gnostics who are infiltrating, uh, infiltrating the church here that he's writing to. This movement was against Christ. And most likely this movement was presenting uh, the flesh as something that is merely cloaked over your spirit, which means the, the body is not necessarily real. What's real is your spirit, your soul, but the, the flesh is, is not all that real. So therefore, it doesn't really matter, they would say, what you do with your flesh. And not only that, but there is no such thing as sin. Because if the flesh is not really real then it, there's nothing wrong you can do with it. And so then they were likely denying sin nature in the human being. They were denying that they have sin at all. And, and, uh, uh, and Paul calls them here. He, he says, you're, you're deceiving yourself. You're self-deceived. Imagine with me for a moment, he's saying, if you deny that you have sin, you are self-deceived. One theologian of the past, he says, if we wrap ourselves in excuses, we will stand one day naked before the throne of God. The person who has an excuse for everything they do. The person who, I mean, you know, you know that they have sinned, but they don't seem to get it. Because every time and any time they're ever approached on anything, they've got a good excuse for you. 
you're self-deceived. You're, you're wrapping yourself in excuses, but one day those excuses are going to be torn off and you're going to stand with nothing before the throne of God. You're deceiving yourself all the way to hell. Verse 10, he repeats it in different wording. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Which means that if we say that we have not sinned, not only are we deceiving ourselves, but we are also calling God a liar. Not that God actually is a liar. We don't make Him a liar. We are making Him out to be a liar. Because God calls us sinful. And we are denying that what God says about us is actually true. Now, John doesn't assume that the people are doing this. I don't think that John is getting on to people so much as he is exhorting them to not be like this. And instead, he gives them an alternative. Look at verse 9. He says, on the other hand, if we confess... Everybody say the word confess. 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 If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess means to say the same. To say the same. So for instance, when we confess like an old creed, a confession of faith, and we're confessing these things together, we're saying the same thing that our brothers and sisters have said for many years. You see what, you see what that is? And, and when we confess our sins, what we're doing is we're saying the same thing about our sin that God says about it. So confession of sin is not just simply stating your sin. It's not just simply admitting your sin. Have you ever known that someone could admit to sin but not actually be confessing their sin? What what is the difference? Well, confession is to state the same. It's to say about your sin and it's to think about your sin what God says and thinks about your sin. This was the real breakthrough for David King David in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, which Stephanie read this morning, after David sins with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, after David has committed adultery and he has uh, murdered someone to cover it up, what does he do finally? After his excuses, wrapping himself up only to stand naked before God, no, he finally gets away from these excuses. And what does he do? He confesses his sin. Meaning he says the same thing about his sin that God says about it. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. He gets it, church. He gets it. And he confesses it. He makes it known to God that he gets it. You know, it's amazing. You confess something to a human being, And we have to pay the consequences. And that's, that's right. What I find so wonderful is that when we confess things to God, we find that the consequences have already been paid. And we receive forgiveness. Do people today deny sin? Do people today deny that they're sinners completely? Well, the answer is yes. Yes. 
in a couple different ways. Like on one hand, you've got some entire denominations, groups of Christians who claim perfectionism. They claim complete sanctification. They claim to arrive at the place in their Christian walk where they no longer sin. I don't have sin. I know people who would tell you they have no sin in their life. The scary thing about this is if they're wrong, they're actually denying sin that needs to be forgiven. Because friends, listen, we can only receive grace for what we know we need grace, uh, gra- grace for. We've got to have our eyes open to the reality that we need grace in order to be recipients of God's grace, don't we? This is how God applies His grace to us. He opens us up to that. He helps us to realize, no, you still need forgiveness. You Christian who's been a Christian for 50 years, you still need the ongoing grace of God active in your life. But also I think there's sort of a whole other stream which might be more applicable to many of you. Sort of this kind of like young, hip crowd, which has found ways to completely just skirt through life, never admitting that they have any sin in their life. For instance, she's not a liar. She's not a liar. Don't call her a liar. She just struggles with the truth. Or it's not adultery. It's, it's just a fling. Or he, he says, no, no, no. It's not lust. It's just eye candy. Or it's not fornication. We just slept together. You slept together. There wasn't any sleeping that took place. Let's call it what it is. It was fornication. Sleeping's not a sin. <laughs> you see how we can, even in the wor- what we call stuff, we, we, we find ways to call stuff by non-sinful titles so that we might just deny sin in our life. If I could summarize that, religious folks sometimes believe that they are completely sanctified and no longer have any need for confession of sin. Irreligious folks often believe that there is absolutely no need for sanctification because nothing is a sin. But people who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ know that, yes, we are broken sinners in need of a Savior, but we are a people who can go before the throne of God and know that our sin has already been paid for, and so we can then freely confess our sin to God. And this leads us to our third and final point. And that is this, a real Christian knows the remedy for sin. A real Christian knows the remedy for sin. There was a young man who began attending one of our community groups. And after some time in the community group, he said to me once, he said, you know, 
I've never seen people who just confess stuff that they've done to each other. Like, I've never seen this before. It was intriguing to him that, that Christians would get together and freely, I mean, not that that's all we're doing, but freely just be able to say, you know, I screwed up. And over time, that intrigue turned into a receiving the gospel for himself. And he became a Christian, made a profession of faith. Why? Because what he saw happening in our community group was that these people actually believe their sins are forgiven. Because if something is forgiven, we don't need to hide it, do we? As a matter of fact, if something is forgiven, if we confess it, it just makes that much more of God because it shows us how great God is to forgive me of all of my sins. And so Christians actually enjoy confessing their sins because it makes much of the God that we love. What he discovered is that it's grace that drives our holiness. Look at the text here. In verse 9, he says this, if we confess our sins, He is, what are the two words there? Help me out. Faithful and just. Now, you would think that that might say, if we confess our sins, He's merciful and kind to forgive us. I think it's really shocking that John writes that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does he mean by that? First, faithful means that God is faithful in His promises to you. Meaning God has made a promise to those in His covenant that all of your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ's blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And so when, he, when we confess our sins, what we find is that He's faithful to His promise, isn't He? But beyond that, and I love this, it says that He's not only faithful, but He is just to forgive us. That means He is right to forgive us. How is God right to forgive us of our sins? You see, God doesn't just simply sweep our sins under the rug. That wouldn't be right. My mother also taught me not to do that. He doesn't just sweep stuff away and pretend like it never happened. That wouldn't be right. But it says that God is just to forgive us our sins. He is right to forgive us our sins. This is what he means by that. He means that the penalty for your sin was placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ when He died upon the cross. And so Jesus, therefore, paid for your penalty, which means there is no more punishment. There is no penalty left for your sin. And then if God were to require a penalty beyond what Jesus paid, God would then be requiring a double payment which would be unjust. But since Jesus paid it all, God then is just and He is right to forgive you of your sins. It is the right thing for God to do. Are you guys tracking with me? I need an amen or a hallelujah with that. He is just to forgive us our sins. 
I want to ask you this question. Are you in Christ? Do you know the grace of Jesus Christ? Do you know His blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins on the cross? Has there ever been a moment where you have received that gift of salvation and said, yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sin. That He took the penalty for my sin on the cross. And I receive His salvation. I turn from my sin and I embrace Christ with all that I have. Friends, this morning, run to Him. Cling to Him as your only hope in life and in death. And you will find that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. And to not just forgive you, but He goes on, He says, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's the element of sanctification there. Which means one day we will be completely sanctified. One day God will completely cleanse us and we will be given a new body in the new heavens and in the new earth. And we will live forever with God, cleansed, not even a stain left. Nothing. No, no remnant of sin left in our life. For we will be with God who is the light. All that comes into the light is forgiven. All that is confessed is forgiven. Know the heart of God. Know that God only wants your good and never your evil. Why did our friend in community group, what, what did he see? What was it that was so commendable of the Gospel in that community group? What he saw was grace. Yes, he saw people striving for holiness, but it was driven by grace. Tim Keller, he, he often gives this sort of dichotomy between religion and the gospel. He says, religion says, obey, and therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. What is it that drives your holiness? Is it this legalistic desire to be accepted by God? Or is it the fact that God has already given you so much grace? And our holiness then is, is driven from that perspective. Why is it that we strive to be holy? Why is it that we fight against sin? Why is it that we get into the Word and into these gatherings and work out our spiritual muscles? Is it so we can flex in the mirror so everybody can look at us and see how wonderful we are? Is it so that we can look down on other people who are not in the spiritual gymnasium? Absolutely not. It is motivated by the grace of Jesus Christ for broken, messed up sinners like myself. And it's so that we might be transformed and made new, so that we might go into the world and do good for our neighbors and be people of the light, commending Jesus Christ in all that we do. Do you know the grace of Jesus Christ? Do you know Him? I want to sing this song together. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. Friends, we are enraptured by His grace. We are brought into the family of God by the gift of Jesus Christ. 
Do you know that grace? Do you know him? Let's pray. And let's continue to sing and worship this morning as the family of God. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together. And we ask that as we, uh, as we eat and as we drink of the Lord's Supper, as we sing these songs, as we now apply your word to our life, we ask that we would be motivated by your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.